Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Censored for season three of my journey into the Irish blacklist. My name's Aoife Vritnach and I'm putting 10 more banned books under the microscope to find the filth that offended the censor. Still 12,500 books to go. If you want to support me on this odyssey into literary rudeness, check out my Patreon page, patreon.com slash censored pod. Thanks to my newest patrons, Sharon Slater, MOC, Nikki Welsh, Julianne Strong, and Louise Foley. Now, The Taylor and Anstey is one of those books that's famous for being banned in Ireland. When you Google literary censorship in Ireland, it's one of a handful of texts that appear. But thousands of books were banned, so how did it achieve this notoriety? It's not really obvious why it should have been banned. It's an affectionate, sentimental account of visiting an elderly couple who lived in Gugonbarra, County Cork. The tailor, who was a tailor by trade, and Anstey, short for Anastasia, were representatives of a rural, bilingual culture that was fading. Students, locals, scholars and artists visited them to experience this unique Irish culture. Eric Cross was one of those acolytes worshipping at the altar of Irish folklore. He wrote this book trying to capture the atmosphere of the tailor's fireside as well as the actual folklore he possessed. When the censorship board banned the book, the Taylor and Anstey went from colourful characters to a pair of filthy old ones with depraved habits. This short, unassuming book had significant consequences for the people featured in it. The book itself was censored for just six years. The ban was lifted in 1948. The public fuss over the censoring of the book made the Minister for Justice reconsider censorship legislation. It's a little book with a big story, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by an extremely knowledgeable guest, Dr. Kelly Fitzgerald, Head of Irish Folklore and Ethnology at University College Dublin. She's also a director of Fjundurucht Bevelidus Éren, the National Folklore Foundation. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Hi, Eva. Thanks so much for inviting me. No, thank you. This is going to be great. There is so much to talk about about this book. It's a simple little book with a big impact. Yes, absolutely. And to this day, it's still in print and you can see why it is such a, a, a cherished 
um, publication of our of our history. I suppose one of the things I always start off with is the food and drink that goes with the book. And it has to be tea because they're always boiling the kettle and Anstey is always calling people in from the road to go, come on in, have a cuppa. You know, it's it's all about the tea and the sociability. It, well, it's all about the tea. Yes, isn't it? But then there are other beverages as well, aren't there? Yes, there is. Uh, well, the Taylor talks a lot about going to the pub, obviously, but there is that wonderful bit where they they're hunting for the pochin bottle, isn't it? Well, I think, and I think it's really appropriate that we speak about Anstey first here because the Taylor always gets so much attention from this publication. But we see the kind of performance of being in the house. So much of it becomes from his wife, and that whole when when they deem it the evening to be special enough that the pot sheen should be taken out uh, to have a sip. But of course, the bottle is not just on the dresser or anywhere easy. The circling around the the acre of land or what have you, and whoever knows where it is, and even if she had it, she's still carrying on her performance. And I think in that one image, Eric Cross really demonstrates what a fabulous eye he has because he just brings us into County Cork. He brings us into this tiny little uh, village or, or outside of it and, and into this home and Anstey and her performance to where they where they hidden this illegal substance uh, before they could drink. And of course, she's partly hiding it in case someone steals it, not just because it's illegal. <laughs> So the rude bits, I mean, okay, first of all, it's not in any way rude in a blanket no. sense, but no. they, they did claim in the Senate that they were reading out bits that were actually rude as they judged it. I I suppose in this re- in regard, you could see it similar to why people were so affronted by James Joyce. There was just a frank honesty to this work that I don't think people in Ireland were prepared to accept in the 1940s, that looking in the mirror, they did not want to see this reflected back, that this is how Irish people were. But we all know this is how Irish people were. And I think uh, it raises a number of issues. And we could talk about the bits in a minute. But I just want to say, first of all, language is very important. Eric Cross did not have Irish, so the book is in English, and what Eric would have taken away is English. And sometimes why I like to use this um, publication to show that uh, things, Irish doesn't have the same impact of bodiness that English does. So when you say certain things in Irish, due to the idiom, due to the nuance, it doesn't come across as body or as frank as it does in English. But seeing that, the bits here are not that body, but there is this, and let's say the first one, I mean, you, you roll around the floor laughing when there was some woman that the tailor came encountered on the road, and she didn't know the difference between a cow or a bull. And he comes into the house. Well, how can you not tell the difference between a cow and a bull? I mean, hello? And she's a married woman as well. I mean, but yes, she is a married woman. What is what is wrong with this person? And I think, in a way, it is that kind of honesty of the logistics of sex. 
So they have the logistics, whereas the tailor may give reference. You know, there are some women who are so fertile. All you have to do is look at them and they become pregnant. And then there's others and you have to bring in the pusher. You know, you have to bring in the stallion or the bull. They still can't get pregnant. And this kind of reality. And that's coming from the tailor. But then coming back to Anstey, I think what was so offensive in this is her voice and her voice offering the stallion, you know, the stall to whoever needed it if they themselves haven't gotten married or need a bit of help in this area. You know, that whole sense of of doing your bit uh, for this. And at one point, uh, Anstey is speaking and they're talking about just looking at it, you know, not being, you know, and Anstey's like, what's the fun in just looking at it? And so here she is, an old married woman admitting that sex could be pleasurable for a woman. And I mean, she calls everybody a shtal, as in a stallion. You know, any yes. man is a yes. stallion. And you're like, really, Anstey? Yes. Okay, I mean, far be it for me to <laughs> criticize, but... <laughs> but it's that fabulous wit and charm. You can only imagine uh, how well being welcomed into their home uh, and everyone being treated... I think that's a part. I mean, we still see that why uh, the kind of interest in Irish culture, that banter and wit that you can bestow upon a stranger as soon as they kind of enter into your realm. And Eric Cross was just besotted by them. And I think he was really just taken aback again. Eric, um, born in Northern Ireland, trained as a chemical engineer, uh, found himself down in Cork uh, for various reasons. And he, re- he he believed he had stayed down there for the tranquility and the beauty of the landscape. And then he finally had to admit, it's the Taylor and Anstey that were keeping him down there. Yeah, he was there for the fun. <laughs> he was absolutely there for the fun. And you could only imagine it. Any evening, you'd go into the house and the you don't know who's going to turn up or what's going to happen, but it'd be a great evening. Yeah, it sounds like a party house. You know, everybody would call in if they were at a loose end. They're like, well, you can always have a laugh in the tailors. Uh, yes, absolutely. We're, we're talking a lot about Eric Cross because it's funny. He gets kind of left out of the story in the common knowledge. We all call it the tailor and Anstey, but we don't say by Eric Cross. But he wrote it. He wrote it, and I suppose, and again, uh, why uh, I really love my students to read this publication, when they're training to be folklorists, when they're training to be ethnographers, um, ethnography is being able to, um, through direct observation and inquiry, understand your subject material. And it's interesting, Eric Cross being that engineer, he really is a fantastic ethnographer. And we can criticize him now because he didn't have the Irish. Uh, We could critique him now for various reasons like that. But we can't critique him for really being able to observe well. And he observes so well. He he really does remove himself from the situation. And he allows it to play out uh, before our eyes, really, is what he gives us. And do you think that he maybe sanitized some of the language? I mean, I did feel that some of the the story punchlines ended with Anstey saying bottom. And I thought no one says bottom when you're 70 something. 
I, I would agree with that. And it's quite interesting. Again, he doesn't sanitize sometimes the content, but the language in that respect, I would. And also um, when he wouldn't understand the Irish, really, when he, you know, the re- reference to the devil or various things, he still puts it in a phonetic way. And I don't really think he understands, you know, the ring of Dora that he keeps on writing, which sounds so silly because it's, you know, glory be to God, this kind of um, very religious phrase that is always coming out of Anstey's mouth. But the way Eric writes it comes across as this kind of nonsensical kind of uh, vocable. But we do have, again, coming back to some of the material, you know, a corn rake has raped a butterfly in Limerick and he's gotten a scholarship for it. Now, that's not the tailor is not saying that to be smutty. He's actually quite intelligent and he's creating a crazy scenario that has somehow been rewarded in academia. So in a way, the smut of that loses the point of what the tailor is trying to get across. So like the smut has always got something else underneath it. And even if there is a smut, I suppose... um, when is it? Is it the King of Solomon and his 10,000 wives uh, and having a different wife every night? Uh, and, you know, the tailor and his guests are just smirking to each other. Uh, and uh, again, that male sense of 10,000 wives. And Ansi's there going, who'd want to be one of those women? Or, you know, what? What? And I think Eric thinks that goes over her head. But I think that's that kind of gender thing as well. Would you want to be one of thousands of wives? I don't think so. (laughs) If nothing else, he'd be knackered every night. I mean, realistically. (laughs) And when would I get my chance? He has so many others to go around with. I thought it was I thought it was very funny when they're in the cinema and the tailor is, of course, as you can imagine, a running commentary on everything. And we've all been to the cinema with people like this or watch TV with someone who just talks the whole time. And he starts talking about how he finds the the Hollywood starlets. They're they're too skinny for him. And he's like, we need to feed them up because he calls them. Was it jolly coppers? Yes, yes. It's fantastic. And again, that kind of him giving that Roman commentary, because that kind of engagement, that kind of passive engagement that you get in the cinema is not something he partakes in. So he doesn't even perform like an audience member should, because at all moments, everyone is audience member and performer. And he definitely is. is and again, I'm, you can only imagine... He loved to hold court, and you could only imagine he'd only give people the stage if they deserved it, and for only as long as they deserved it. Yes, he's a great example of of that aspect of Irish culture where you can talk the hind leg off a donkey as long as you're funny. If you're funny, and if you're interesting or compelling, that's fine. If you're none of those things, shut up. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's quite a distinctive feature. And, you know, sometimes it's great. And sometimes you're like, it's a bit mean because you have to be good. Yes, you do. <laughs> but O'Connor in his introduction, he said the old couple were virtuous. They were not respectable and they paid dearly for it. And there's this hilarious thing where Anstey sees an ad in the paper for corsets. And she's yes. like, oh, my 
God, these people are naked in the newspaper and I can see everything. And you're like, that is precisely the attitude the censors had to pictures of women in corsets. Yes. And they're not dealing with how she's responding to it or what is what is actually the context of it in the narrative. And I think that's I think the censors had a lot of other issues, though. I suppose they could actually censor them for the smut. But if you think of it, what was the Taylor Anstey's relationship to time? You have this image of the of Anstey uh, winding the clock that is in a box that never goes anywhere. Leo Varadkar would go crazy over that. Like time, totally irrelevant. But we have this precious object. We keep it a box in Anstey's performance of the day. Winding that clock is part of it. They never look at the time, nor does it mean anything to them. And I think that whole kind of modern concept of how we should behave and how our day should be regulated, they are just throwing their two fingers to it and saying, we don't live like that. Even more so, perhaps, their view on religion, that the tailor, he does his bit, but he is quite upset you know, if people are overly religious, he actually kind of suggests that they might as well just kill themselves because the priest is obviously being driven demented by them. So I think there's a lot of other more subtle nuances of country people in Ireland at the time that the establishment just wanted to keep a lid on and not recognize that this is actually how people are living their lives. Especially, I think, with regard to, like, following the rules, that point about the clock. Like, he spends a lot of time saying, oh, there's inspectors for this and there's inspectors for that. And and it's that aspect of Irish character, which is, like, uh, the rules are for other people. Aoife, absolutely, that is it. He he is really just on his... He, they're living their lives. They don't want to bother anyone, but they don't want to be bothered. And they don't feel they should be. And all of that, I mean, people were living like this. They are not unusual in their sentiment or, or, or looking at the world like this. But to actually publish it and to share it is something that I, I think, again, the people at the top, the legis you know, all of that would, were having issues with. Because this is unusual. It actually got discussed in the Senate. Yes. For Four long, boring days. I mean, it's all there for anyone who wants to read it online, but you wouldn't really want to. No, and I kept on reading it, waiting to come to the... to actually find out why this was so important for them to discuss it for so... And I, I, don't, I really don't understand it. It started off with a motion from one senator, and then... Oh, well, rather foolishly, he, he did call the censors the, the literary Gestapo. And it kind of, he seemed to have lit a fire under loads of them from then on. Absolutely. Yes, I, I agree. It's a really interesting debate because there is actually a censor in the Senate, Professor McGuinness. And it's like must be one of the few occasions where a censor goes on public record to explain exactly what his thought process is. That's, Aoife, that's a really interesting point because, again, Ireland is not alone in censorship at this time. 
But again, Ireland either doesn't do something, but if it does choose to do something, it does it so intensely. <laughs> yeah, nothing like a bit of extremism, eh? No. He says, I'm not even Victorian. I take my, my morals from Moses. Right. Well. <laughs> He's going way back. Hotline to the prophets. Who knew? Maybe he really did know what the Victorians were like. That's why he didn't want to be associated with them. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> and there's a, a number of other people then come in because it's like so many senators have a go. And most of them, in fact, all of them, agree censorship is a good thing. And loads of them agree the book is pure filth, total smosh mm -hmm. and all of that. But like it comes from this weird place where they're worried what people will think about them. I mean, how does that work? To me, this book really uh, epitomizes the kind of cultural um, development of Ireland at the time, and particularly where the role of folklore. And folklore is ancient, and folklore is unchanged. It's it's. It's so important. The Irish Folklore Commission was only formed in 1935. Uh, we see uh, the cultural importance given to these narratives and stories of epic proportion and dimension that are deep within our cultural DNA uh, and what that means and the people who carry those narratives and this kind of on the peasant on the pedestal as it was. And in a way, the tailor demonstrates that he's not some kind of ancient uh, um, key that has been untouched by modern civilization. He's just living his life. It is a real affront uh, to what it was seen to be what is culturally accepted and what they wanted folklore to exist and what he was expressing in, in what in that kind of folkloric uh, way in which a folklore collector would have worked. Were there very bawdy stories collected by the Folklore Commission? I mean, because they did go around with their little edophone and sit in front of people and tell people to talk into it. And I suppose this is, again, um, the the relationship between the collector or the ethnographer and the person they're collecting from uh, has a, a huge dynamic for that. And I suppose with my students, I always use the example of the song calling Joss Crutinamo. And that song can be quite religious. It can be quite, uh, again, how you for ignoring temptation or, or being able to survive temptation. And then it can also be a very body song where a man's penis is dripping from being sexually uh, transmitted disease. Has He's become infected by the fine Colleen Joss. Uh, and um, the most body version of that song was collected by Seamus Ennis, a musician himself. In his, he was in his 20s, in the 1940s when he collected it. So you always have to have the situation uh, where the person is comfortable in what they're sharing. I think, again, I see it even when Ennis collects body material from his most well-known informant, Colum Oquion. There are certain narratives Colum won't give if his wife is still around or the kids are awake. But after hours and we still kind of have you know that's almost like the 9 p.m oh this was on rte before 9 p.m it's shocking 
you know, but we see um, there there would have been material. And I suppose it wouldn't have been until uh, 1989 when Michael J. Murphy uh, published My Man Jack, um, Body Tales from Irish Folklore, that that came out. But a lot of the material, even from Michael J. here, is much earlier than the 70s and 80s, but they're about uh, with it. So it really highlights that there is body material. When it's in Irish, it doesn't have the same impact. Uh, and when it's been put in an archive, it hasn't really been chosen to uh, be representative in that kind of publication form uh, for folklore. But we see the censorship was happening everywhere. If you look at it, um, Tomaso Crehan's work of Until Now, uh, when on Schauk edited that, he took out all the body bits Tomas had had included in his memoir. And it wasn't until Sean Aquilan's version in 2002 that all of that is put back and restores Tomas's uh, wor uh, world as it would be. Peg Sayers, loads of boy. Oh, she was like the she was like the sex educator on the Blasket. So, I mean, and of course, what brings laughter? I mean, what what what's the function of these tales, right? And the one way they express the ways of the world, you can talk about the ways of the world uh, with it, but they bring laughter. And I think perhaps when we think of our own development, when do we love to be body when we're children? Because you're pushing the envelope, you're speaking about the taboo subjects, you don't quite, you're still working it out yourself. All of those aspects to this type of material are exactly the things that grown up, mature, going to work at 9am society just wants to leave behind, you know? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's this kind of vision of society where everyone's very ordered and they're very polite and yes. they say all nice things and they behave very properly and it's all lovely. And to admit you like sex or understand sex or need sex would be something left unsaid. 
unspoken, undemonstrated. Ireland is very much kind of caught up uh, in that regard, definitely. But but sorry, if I, if I may, I just to say uh, again, the kind of um, collection of body folktales, of course, is Vance Randolph's Pissing in the Snow. And that took him years to get published in America. And again, it wasn't until the 1970s. And most of that is material he collected in the 1920s and 30s in the Ozarks. So we see Ireland, um, but the oral, the unspoken, the unwritten, to put that into the written, it crosses a line that I think literature, because that's it. Again, sorry, that's it. This oral literature and even using that term shows the kind of cultural uh, weight and value it has and here these kind of pithy narratives coming out of the tailor is just not showing us upright and of course you can't deny it if it's in print it's right there in front of you and everybody can go look they actually do talk about ooh, cock and balls there look they're making a joke about it right there for half a page, and we can't deny it. No, we can't deny it. And was the tailor, he was a subject for the Folklore Commission, wasn't he? They recorded him. They did, and it's quite interesting. So after the publication came out, um, either Shaughnessy Luan, the archivist, or uh, Shemiso Delarga, the director, um, sent the full-time collector, Shauna Cronin, uh, down uh, to the um, tailor, and he spent, I think, 14 days over the, uh, in the course of the summer uh, at the tailor and collecting material as uh, they would. Yes, yeah, so in, um, in September, so between the 14th of July and the 27th of September in 1942, Shauna Cronin spent time collecting material from the tailor. So he was he was an official folklore person as well as just someone that a lot of people found entertaining. He he kind of became part of the archive. Oh, he definitely did. And in fact, um, the first time he features in the archive, um, I don't know. I don't think I don't know that I don't think there's a relation. But a, a Nora Necronin, uh collected one tale from him in 1938, which is found in the collection as well. So he is an informant, and then. He really gets uh, a greater dealing. Now, interestingly enough, then Sean O'Croney passed away in 1945. So it wasn't until the 1970s, um, 1978, I believe, when Andreas Omwinakon, um, the president of the Folklore of Ireland Society, uh, published a, a short collection of material collected. And it's quite interesting because Andreas would have been from the area um, where the tailor was from. And in the Vrolach, uh, in the introduction, there's no reference to the um, censorship of the original earlier publication based on the tailor. But you can see that this is here to set the record straight, that the tailor is one of ours and he is, should be respected for the material that he had. And it's really interesting in that kind of unspoken way, but setting the record straight. That's one of the things that Frank O'Connor says in his introduction. He claims that people stopped talking to them and that they suffered social consequence from this ban. No, and I think subsequently since then, um, 
Uh, I believe there have been interviews with the Taylor Nancy's grandchildren or a granddaughter, and she says that's not the case, that people did rally around them. And I think, I don't know, Frank O'Connor, that may have been a narrative that it, it gets all very complicated culturally, I think. But locally, apart from the priests coming down, uh, and again, there is an, um, a, a kind of orally one of the priests that did make the Taylor burn his book. He later, like for the record, stated he regretted doing that to him. And they didn't live long. As we know, um, the Taylor and Anstey both died. Uh, the Taylor, what, two years after the book was banned and, and Anstey a few years after that. So it wasn't long. The Taylor is the Taylor and he was so well loved. I don't think people could have stopped. Imagine you have so few outlets of entertainment and fun. You, you, you wouldn't stop it. I mean, perhaps for a time, but I don't think there was a long term uh, boycott of them. But that, but that's my impression. Throughout the Senate debate, a number of the senators from around that part of the country were like, this is not representative of who we are in West Cork. And although I think one of them was based in Bantry, which is quite far away from Gugon Barry, you know, it's technically not the same place. <laughs> no, and I suppose, again, that's that certain level of society. Um, because um, the Anstey's, particularly Anstey's world, but the Taylor's world, their world is quite small. And even if the kind of more um, the the villages nearby or the kind of larger areas, if they who didn't really know them that well, but I think in the locality, they still kind of rallied round the couple um, uh, in that regard. Oh, yes. One of the funny things that Professor McGuinness said the book was, he said it was blasphemous. How could it possibly be considered blasphemous? Again, it's those parts, I think, of that where, you know, when they're speaking about the rosary and um, the tailor's asking God to give him patience with such people. And he saw being religious as a sort of disable get. And he himself never had it. But he may have seen a number of people who were driven dotty by it. And they think that everything they do is a sin. I don't know why they don't go and drown themselves. They must have driven the priests crazy with it. So I think, again, to obviously quoting the tailor there, uh, we see um, that, I know that seems quite humorous to us now, but in the 1940s, to be so outright in terms of how you see religion, I could see how certain people of the time would have found that quite blasphemous to even state that. I mean, again, this is control and the only way of control is to make sure everyone is in line and, uh, you know, behaving as they should. And if there is any subversion on that, then you have to, you know, hunker down on it. I thought it might have been at the end where they talk about where Eric Cross is sort of visualizing them in the afterlife and they go to heaven and they have a great time and then they get bored and they go to hell. <laughs> Because it's much more fun. I would agree with that. Now, again, I suppose that's, that's Eric's impression of them, which they totally would have supported. You can only imagine. So, yes, I take your I take that as well. That definitely uh, Eric, who knew them so well, uh, definitely would have said, you could just see Etsy up there. And she just would have been like, is this it? 
seriously, this is it. <laughs> I'm done with it up here. <laughs> but all this fuss about the banning, because the four days of, oh my God, endless discussion in the Senate. And then it was in the newspapers and yeah. people did talk about it. Yes. Was that, did that kind of embarrass the government? Were they a little bit uneasy after that experience of having to justify what they were up to? I would say that it almost kind of gained a life of its own. And as you said in the beginning, um, the sense of how much, how infamous this publication became and how infamous the Taylor and Anstey became. Books could be banned every day and there'd be no word of it. But then all this hoopla was created in particular about this one. It got a bit of press. Uh, and then once the government were behind it, it's almost they had to stick their guns. They really had to not back down and have a U-turn on this at all and really state. And it's almost, again, the senators dealing in a pack. And if one person thinks this, that sense of control and, and behavior Another senator is not going to try and say, hold on a minute, because he's not going to be the one to have the dissenting voice. You can really see that in the Senate debates, because by the end, John Keane, who put forward the motion to debate censorship, was like, look, just forget about it. We won't even talk about it. I'll withdraw the motion. And the House is like, no, we're going to humiliate you. Uh, We insist you have a vote. They had a vote. It was him and one other bloke who voted for it. And everyone else mm-hmm. voted against it. Yeah. It was it was a massive performance of yeah. the establishment putting out their opinions and making sure that even someone who is technically the establishment like John Keane has no space. Exactly. So then they did change it with and they brought in this appeals process. And then the yeah. Taylor and Anstey is released after just six years. So it's free. And was it popular from then on? Was it? I know Eric Cross himself says in those years, he couldn't even get a copy of the book himself. Uh, And then, so I think that kind of notoriety brought people to want to have a copy of it. It then, um, it was then uh, another reprint or or, or edition in the 1960s where Eric has his his, um, epilogue in there. And then throughout into the 80s and 90s, you know, Mercer Press is still having making sure that it's in publication. So I I don't know even the readership of it or, or what have you. Um, but the Taylor and Anstey have there's this kind of almost popular tradition of having them in the psyche, in the, in the Irish psyche of the 20th century. Oh, yeah, they're they're a household name, even if you've never read them. You've heard of it. Yes. You sort of yes, know exactly. vaguely what it's about. Yes. 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 And I love it. Eric Cross himself states in his in his nineteen in the nineteen sixties epilogue that for the past twenty years of his life, people are always saying, "Oh, I know someone just like the Taylor." Like, like I think that's it. Really hits home that everyone felt that they had a Taylor and Anstey in their own lives. I love the idea that, you know, people across the country are looking at their grandparents and going, you know, they're a bit like the Taylor and Anstey. They have the wit. They have the humor. You can joke around with them. And I think that's what really prevails in this uh, text, uh, apart from others as well, is that 
if you read even a bit of it, you relate to it, you try and find your own parallels in your own world. Um, all of that, I think, really kind of is a process as a reader that happens. So let's turn to censorship bingo. I mean, I can't imagine it's going to score very highly, but maybe there's bits I've missed. So stop me if I'm missing anything. <laughs> Firstly, breasts. I did think Jolly Coppers was about boobs. Yes, definitely. The Jolly Coppers are breasts. Bestiality? Definitely not. Surely not. Well, I don't know. Unless, is it, be, is it if it's inner species? <laughs> if a corn-raped bird rapes a butterfly, is that bestiality? I think bestiality is very human-based. No, there's no, and there was not even the hint of, you can imagine, now maybe that is something Eric Cross took out, because you can imagine there would have been jokes of certain things, but I don't know. <laughs> Surely in a in a countryside situation with so much animals sleeping in houses and everything. <laughs> Sex work. Surely not. No. No. No, no the racism. I didn't think so, but there is that story where he's talking about how the Boers are descended from the Irish. Yes. And Africa features in a very stereotyped kind of way. It does, yes. It's a bit of a stretch, really. It is. It's yeah, it's not even really much part of the text. No. Drugs. No, no drugs. Apart from the pochine. Pochine is the only thing, yes. So not really, no. That is treated almost like a class A drug as well. <laughs> You know the party's starting once the pochine enters. It was the way that she she rinsed the glasses and then did she light something to take away the smell of the drink? Yes, yes. Next one, politics. I mean, politics is sort of throughout the whole text in different kind of forms. In different kinds of forms, but not really. They're not taking a stance or really even engaging in party political or... Um, other aspects of it. I didn't think so. No. No, I think that would have actually offended the censors that they weren't interested. Yes, exactly. Swearing. No, I don't think there is, but I think that it's like you can imagine that they did swear. Yes. And again, I think you and I agree that Eric, that's something he would have perhaps taken out in a way he let the other content just speak for itself. But the language he may have edited as bottom. Every time you read her saying, but you're completing it in your own mind. Oh God. Yeah. She definitely said arse. She definitely <laughs> yes. did. Yes. Yes. It just doesn't work as, a, as a punchline. So I don't know. I don't know how your bingo works with um, swearing subtext. There was in subtext. It was swearing. Implicit swearing. If such a thing exists. Implicit, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Infidelity. No, they never talked about infidelity, did they? No, no, they never talked about that. All the sex was marital. Yes, very much so. Even if the marital sex was 10,000 wives, definitely marital. Crime. I didn't think so. The poaching is the, again. <laughs> does that count as crime in rural Ireland? I mean. No, it does not. No. I think even the lads in the Senate would struggle to claim that was criminal. Yes. Genitalia. No, but I do think the bull cow story leads you to think about genitalia. And it's in, it's inferred, yes, but no. Yeah, it, they don't actually have to say it, 
Next one. Abortion. No, definitely not. Definitely not. No. Orgies. God, no. No. <laughs> no. Apart from Solomon, but that's, yeah, <laughs> that's biblical. It was in, ma- in marriage. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> Sexual assault. No. Well, the corn rake raping the butterfly. A true interspecies weird sexual assault. See, no one realized that was in the Taylor <laughs> They missed that one. <laughs> extramarital pregnancy. No, no extramarital sex no. at all, really. No, no. Uh, masturbation? I didn't think so. Did I miss it? I don't think so. No. I think, like, again, any in- inference of, of sex, you could enjoy sex, but it was sex. It wasn't sex on your with yourself oh yes yeah they're very keen on married sex for procreative purposes yes ironically just the same as the censors and all the lads in power this is it but you're not supposed to enjoy it Eva. that's where they got in trouble for it and no jokes about it at all because that's also rude no exactly (laughs) god it was such a dull place 1940s ireland on paper (laughs) On paper. On paper. As we know from the Taylor and Anstey, not so much in real life. <laughs> uh, sex toys, definitely not. God, no. Definitely not. Uh, feminism, no. Well, I don't... Okay, this is again... I think the ta- the censors were quite affronted on Anstey having such a prominent role in this text and that the Taylor um, engaged included her in such conversations so many that we've referred to already so i don't think it's explicit feminism or stating it because they're also quite misogynistic towards anstey throughout this as well um due to she just didn't have the same opportunities in life and wasn't in scotland or traveled kind of beyond her world i mean as it says cork city is quite so i i don't think we can tick it for the bingo but i just want to say that i do think the censors were also affronted in how a woman could be included in this world that should be the world of men and what men's discussions, which women know nothing about. Yeah, they they talked about that quite a lot. Some of the senators even refused to believe she had said things that were rude. Yes, yeah. Although it's not strictly feminism, it's kind of an equality of the sexes. Yes, recognize it, allowing some uh, her gender to engage in in, in this. Yeah, <laughs> it just shows how crazy it was in Port Ireland that we could stretch that. But anyways, yes, divorce. No, they definitely didn't talk no. about divorce. They didn't even mention it. No, contraception. Well, no, because it's it's all about conception. It's all about conception and. Again, even if you're having the sex and making fun of the sex, you still want to procreate from the sex. The next one, menstruation. No, they didn't talk about women's bodies like that. No, they didn't. And again, Anstey, so, I mean, I'd say it had been quite a few years. But no, that was never mentioned at all. No, it is quite a a lad's kind of story. Yes. You know, she's there, but it's driven by a male voice. Yes, absolutely. Blasphemy. Well, yes, according to them, but... I, according to you and I, I'd say no. <laughs> no, they're, they're not offensive about churches even. No, and I don't even think, I mean, at the time, 
the tailor may have seemed to be um, somewhat anti-clerical. Again, when you look at what um, Sean O'Cronin collected from him, he has one of those narratives of Owen Rua Suluan kind of doing one, you know, um, outwitting the priest. But that's that kind of material was was everywhere. So, no, the tailor is not blasphemous. No, but we do know that that the censors thought it was. So we have to take it. OK. Oh, OK. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you now, Aoife. OK. In this case, we have documentary evidence that they thought it was blasphemous. OK. Oral sex. No, I don't think so. No, 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 none of no, no, because they're, they're just not interested in anything that isn't for conception, really. Copulation is is really the only game in town. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Next one. Graphic violence. No, there was no violence in this. It wasn't. No, not even the stories no. were violent. No, I mean, the most violent thing I think is uh, when some poor man gave his coat to the tailor. Oh, the poor coach. The, the thing that should feel most used and abused from this publication was that poor coat. Sorry, if anyone's listening to this, you need to read the book or else that makes no sense. So, yeah, we feel sorry oh. for the coat. Yes. Uh, and the final square, queer content. Well, no, there isn't anything no. at all. Not at all. No, no, not at all. Obviously, that is happening in 1940s Ireland. I'm sure it's happening in West Cork. Um, but there's just it's just not on their radar at all. Like we say, it's very marital heteronormative sex, really. That's what they're interested in. Absolutely. Which is, ironically, the, the only standard and the only game in town. And there they are, <laughs> censored for talking about the exact thing everyone is supposed to be doing. Exactly. I know. It's quite shocking, really. It was so wrong to ban it. It was so wrong. And I, I suppose, again, I read it every year with my students. Um, but reading it um, in particular to talk with you today, Eva, it just was breaking my heart to just think of t- poor Taylor and his wife going through this for just being themselves and not even going out of their way. I mean, it's not their publication. If Air Cross never wrote this, we'd never know about the Taylor Nasty. So again, they're just kind of bystanders of their own kind of, of fate in in terms of what happens to them. Although I can, I can imagine that they would have found a strange, perverse pleasure in being taught kind of notorious. You can. And again, in that, that final epilogue uh, or the final bit where Eric Cross does include when he, 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 he writes about uh, how the tailor responds when he comes to let the tailor know that the book has been banned. And there is a bit of, pro- I think, now again, I'm, I, I may be inferring it. I, I feel it's inferred that the tailor is a bit proud of that fact that, you know, because but it could get quite complex, you know, he would want to be accepted by them, but not being accepted by them kind of justifies his views on them anyway. So it's all very, <laughs> can go round and round really in what's happening there. Yeah. I mean, he was a man, I think of great self-confidence. Not a lot would have shook him. Absolutely. He knew him. He is a man who knew himself and was not afraid to be himself. Yeah. And I suppose that's what, they found difficult was that he wasn't apologizing for no his personality or his interests or his language no not at all not at all 
Thank you so much, Kelly. It was absolutely brilliant. I've, I've learned so much. Aoife, it was, it was just been a pleasure talking to you today. So thank you. Thank you. With a score of just two out of 25 in censorship bingo, I can't recommend you read the Taylor and Anstey for the smut. This is the lowest score in the podcast so far. But isn't it interesting that one of the most famous Band in Ireland books was entirely inoffensive? This little book annoyed an oversensitive nationalist establishment that preferred idealised peasants to real people. Sex wasn't the only fact of life the censors couldn't handle. Next episode, I'll be analysing Claude McKay's Home to Harlem, one of the first books banned under the 1929 Act. It's also the first book on the podcast by an author of colour. McKay was born in Jamaica, but his work is part of the flowering of black American art and culture that happened in Harlem in the 1920s. I expect I'll be talking a lot about racism, both American and Irish forms, in the next episode. In the meantime, create some offensive folk culture of your own by telling some very mild dick jokes. Then watch the foundations of the nation crumble before your very eyes. Don't let all that power go to your head now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.